0: Welcome to this edition of Leading Edge. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. Today, we've got a show of perspectives, but we begin with the UAW Big Three contract stalemate. And our perspective comes from one of the preeminent educational institutions in the world focused on work, employment, and labor. We're talking about Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations. And I first asked the director of labor studies about the UAW's stand up and strike strategy. Here's our conversation.
1: And I think what's happening is, number one, if they struck all 146,000 UAW members at once, then all of that money comes out of the strike fund. So all of a sudden you're starting to deplete the strike fund from everywhere else. If you pick selected targeted plants, like in Toledo for Jeep, then the pain is localized for that one particular plant. It's still going to be an impact, but only those workers for Stellantis in Toledo are paid under the strike fund. Everybody else continues to work. So it also puts a huge element of surprise in bargaining at the table because the companies, number one, know you're willing to strike, and number two, don't know where the next one will be this is a punch in the gut not specific
0: to the plant or the selection of the toledo plant but but i guess how much do you think the uaw put into terms or put into consideration the fact this is a very blue collar town i mean we don't have a lot of fortune 500 companies in toledo and for this company to be able to with or this this city to be able to withstand this blow. Do you think that that kind of rolled into the consideration of where can we, where can we strike? Do we have to worry about the town?
1: I think it's, it's not specific to Toledo and that's why we want to try to help or hurt Toledo. I think it's much more about, we need to have a plant with significant impact. So they picked three assembly plants so you had a lot of jobs, but it's also one where you can make up any of that lost production in Toledo within a matter of weeks, so that if you lost production for, say, one week before the even the end of the year wouldn't even impact your profit sharing, you could make up that lost production within that time frame. So it it's, does show that. The other thing is, is I think you have a significant backlog or inventory of a lot of the jeeps in stock now so it's not like they're hitting the 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 one vehicle you can't have and nobody can get it's one of the ones where it's a a big place has an impact but we can try to manage the the lost as the paper cut analogy is is appropriate that this will hurt a little bit right now but if we struck everybody if you had toledo with absolutely no trucks going to any auto plants that's a huge deal what do you say
0: to the the asks um obviously reach for the stars right out of the gate that's part of negotiation but um where where is the middle ground in any of this and in, in
1: in your experience there is middle ground and they're already finding a lot of it but they haven't found all of it and a lot of the things that the UAW is asking for are things that they already had in their contracts previously. So they're asking for eliminating the tiers. Well, during the bankruptcies and Toledo felt that impact of bankruptcies, having big Jeep plant, that you felt those bankruptcy pains. And you know that a lot was given up to try to save those companies so that they had cost of living in their agreements for decades. They had um, the to find benefit pension plans in their agreements for decades. They've had all of these things in their contracts for generations, and they took them away to bring them out of bankruptcy. So what they're asking for are a lot of things that aren't ridiculous, but when you put them all back together at once, then it's a huge number. Is any of this attainable for these corporations? Uh, and,
0: and I brought reference last night to – the bailout, $81 billion in in 08. Um and where they stand today, making this EV transition and, and and putting so much focus on that. I heard a report this morning talking about how this sets back that progress.
1: What do you think there? Well, using some of the numbers the UAW provided, they're saying that the labor costs are between four and five percent but the price of the vehicles have gone up 30%. So in terms of what the labor costs are four to 5%, and they have increased 6% over the last four years because they got 3% a lump sum, 3% a lump sum, whereas the CEO pay went up over 40 some percent. So they're saying, you know what? Yes, you can absorb these costs. And yes, you're getting billions, tens of billions of dollars from the government to help you in these battery plants and this adjustment, and how much of that has given any guarantees to the pay and the benefits of the people that work there. So, the new hires at these battery plants are making less than you have to get at McDonald's. So, California just passed the, 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 for the, Um, fast food, they have to get a minimum of $20 an hour in California. And these folks are starting out at like 16. So you're, you're, you're talking about, gee, is it really worth it to put your body on the line, working on an assembly line under the stress with lots of mandatory overtime as compared to working somewhere else in an air conditioned environment where you could actually have some work-life balance. And a lot of this is work-life balance as well. I'm I'm interested what this
0: says, and and I'll let you go, what this says about the labor labor movement in the U.S.
1: today. I think it says a lot that, number one, the current density is less, is about 10%. We're at 10.1% unionized in the U.S. as of the start of the year, 90% non-union, but you're seeing a lot more action and activity, whether it's at Starbucks, whether it's at Amazon, and you're seeing it in younger workforce because a lot of people are really tired of the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer, and the uneven distribution of the wealth based on when you were hired. So if you were hired in 2007 at General Motors, or at Stellantis in that Jeep plant, you're making $30 an hour. If you're hired this month, you're making less than $18 an hour. And you're doing the same exact, same exact job on the same exact line, and you're making $10, $15, $20 an hour less in pay and benefits only because of your hire date. It's a hard argument to
0: swallow because I, I think I started in this business in '96, and... You know, I'm making sixteen thousand five hundred dollars at my first job, and it's taken a lot of years to try to get better contracts. Right? I didn't have a union representing me, so it's it's kind of like I don't know. You get tunnel. I guess you get tunnel vision sometimes, depending on uh, what your situation
1: is. But if you go back that many years and you plug in your cost of living agreement over that over the life of that time frame. Or how much your house has increased in value over that time frame. Then you compare the paychecks and say, you know what? It's somewhat in line. And uh NABIT, the the union covering a lot of the entertainment arts and media, they absolutely have seen a lot of pain. It used to be when you started out as a reporter, you got to do the... The job of just reporting and doing the story, and you had a camera person, you had a sound person, and you had a director, and you had all of this other stuff, and then now it's like it's you and Zoom and nobody else to help you. So it really does make a difference on what you've got for for how things are going, and you're not making the big money doing that, and you're adding a lot more.
0: We appreciate Art Wheaton and his perspective here. We do want to point out once again, Art and I discussed things last week. We are taping this show on Thursday. We know a lot has changed. This is a fluid moment for the UAW and the Big Three, and we know things change each and every day and progress. But of course, we will have the very latest for you each and every week right here on WTOL. We said this show's about perspectives. We talk about the race for the cure next. Welcome back. We want to talk about the race for the cure. Susan G. Komen, such a great partner for us here at WTOL 11 each and every year with the race this weekend. An interview discussing the mission and the work that is done year round by the foundation was so important. So great to have Gretchen Awad here, executive director for Susan G. Komen here in Northwest Ohio. Good to see you once again. I know it has been a busy last few weeks leading up to the race day. Race on Saturday this year, Mm -hmm. a bit of a change, but I wanted to hear from you as far as the mission itself and the things that people may not understand that go on behind the scenes leading up to a day like that. Sure,
2: The race is one day, it's our most recognizable, our biggest celebratory day. Yeah, thanks to (laughs) our friends at TOL. Very visible and what people associate Coleman with. But that's just kind of our way to come together as a community it doesn't speak to the mission that we do year round. Mm -hmm. So right away, immediately, I'm looking at what we can improve for next year. I'm talking to our board of directors, I'm talking to our sponsors, I'm talking to our participants and our fundraisers, making sure that we are transparent with those dollars that we raised, making sure that I'm being very thorough with everything, reporting that back out as quickly as I possibly can but then continuing to fundraise to continue to fund the mission.
0: Right. Let me, let, me, let me ask you on that topic, as far as sponsors, as far as fundraising is concerned, it's a grind. I know it is. <laughs> it is. But over the last few years, how tough is it to make sure, obviously people know the mission, people know the passion, mm-hmm. the purpose behind mm-hmm. it, but how tough is that going out each and every year and making sure I have that commitment?
2: I mean, listen, 30 years is a long time to host an event the anyway. same event every year. 30 years is a big <laughs> yeah, deal. Yeah. Um, but when we look at Komen as a national organization and we look at who is hosting Race for the Cure events, mm-hmm. Toledo, by definition, is probably one of the smaller markets, right? Population, maybe per capita income, all the, those types of things. Um,
0: How many others are happening around Ohio? You've got the Cleveland two, market, right? Two, Okay.
2: <laughs> We have Detroit Race for the Cure. We have a Cleveland Walk. It's not a race. It's a walk that's very Mm park-like. And then Columbus, which happens to be one of the biggest in the nation. Mm -hmm. We happen to have it here. So our national organization said we support the Northwest Ohio race. We support those donors, those sponsors, and um, the community. So they embrace our race, and, and we build it up every year.
0: And they're here as well on the ground. Race Day, correct?
2: Yes. Yes. So all of Komen, you know, we've shrunk. Um, in size of, you know, company, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm the only person representing Northwest Ohio and serving our community, but we all lean in. So we were lucky to have our state executive director from Cleveland in. We had um, some partners from Chicago. We had our vice president of development fly in from New York. Wow. Um our race matters to the Komen National Organization just as much as it matters to us here in Northwest Ohio.
0: Talk about the the experience, I guess, of, of Race Day. And, uh, you know, our, our management here, they keep re- repeating to us and reminding us that even our coverage, our stories that we do, up until Race Day, when we're actually broadcasting the race that morning, people are taking notice and even scheduling mammograms because of that coverage. Right.
2: First of all, let me say, the Northwest Ohio Coming community is really lucky. I don't think there's any other market that has full coverage on day of of their event. So first of all, we're so lucky. And I have had people coming up to me post-race saying, you don't know who I am, but I know who you are. Mm. And let me tell you how race affected my life. Let me tell you how race saved my life. I was laying in bed, I didn't go to race day, but I watched it on TV. And decided I needed to schedule a mammogram. It's been a few years when I did the when I thought about it. Mm. Um, so it's the ripple effect of what we do. It's not just those, you know, hurried four or five hours during the day. But we pull in, my committee has been working year round. We get incredible volunteers that show up at 3 30 in the morning, and it is the most exciting few hours that I think you can have. I mean yeah. the, the gun goes off and the racers run and walk and you're just on this high and it's so wonderful because the energy of the of the community you just feel it it's it's,
0: it's coordinated chaos is what <laughs> it, it is, is. It right is. yeah but it's also one of those things that for for people who have not experienced it who have not come down who have not had uh, i i guess a bunch of fighters mm-hmm. in your family uh you just see the spirit right mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is within those folks down there wanting to be there for others
2: I had a donor one time tell me, a very wonderful donor, one time come up to me and say, I continue to support Komen because this is the most inclusive event in Northwest Ohio. You have people from all walks of life, um, all stages of their life, young, older, married, single men, women, um, every single ethnicity, all coming for the same mission and you're walking alongside them. And he said, I donate to Coleman because I know when I show up on race day, my donor dollars are probably affecting that person that's walking right alongside me, yeah. and everyone's there for a different reason. reason whether they care about Coleman's mission of um, research or patient navigation or advocacy, we're all there for the same purpose, but maybe just different focuses for each person. Which yeah. is, it's really exciting.
0: In our last thirty seconds, what's your hope for thirty-one?
2: Thirty-one. I want everyone to come back. I want everyone to embrace what we do. Mm. I want it to get bigger but I always hope to work myself out of a job. We're working for a world without breast cancer. So we embrace our race, but the day that it doesn't have to happen anymore because we have saved as many lives as we possibly can, I'm good with that.
0: Well said. Gretchen Awad, thank you. Great job once again this year. We appreciate it. So happy to be a partner once again. We'll be back. We talk about 20 under 40 going on 27 years old next. Welcome back for our final segment here. For the last 27 years, I know it's hard to believe, since 1996, 20 under 40 has recognized Toledo area leaders under the age of 40 who have been influential in our region. And in just the past few weeks, in just a few weeks, in fact, 20 under 40, that celebration's once again gonna happen again, and our very own Chris Vickers, meteorologist Chris Vickers, is one of the recipients this year. In addition to honoring the recipients, the program is intended to help motivate young people throughout our area to become community leaders. So, I wanted to take a trip back in time and honor Somebody from that 1996 class, (laughs) let's welcome in Gretchen DeBacker, who (laughs) was, you You know, I called, I called some of the folks who put this on and I said, here's what I'd like to do. Here's the brainchild here. I would like to look at 20 under 40 and go back to the very beginning. So I started looking through the list of names and I'm like, I know Gretchen, I'll give her a call. Bring people up to speed. 27 years ago, Gretchen DeBacker was blank.
3: (laughs) 26. <laughs> it's crazy to think um, that that was that long ago. And it was the first ever, 1996 right. was the first ever 20 under 40 um What did um, it event. mean to you
0: at that moment? And, and, and I guess give our viewers a feel for what you were doing then, for those who are transplants or weren't here yeah. a long time ago and knew what the DeBacker sisters yes. actually put together.
3: So back in 1996, it, actually in 1994, my two sisters and mother and I opened um, Sufficient Grounds Coffee House. Um, we were in West Toledo. And so by 1996, we had three locations. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I was sort of our marketing and communications person. I think that that's was, was how my, um, I, I think I was nominated, but I really sort of kept consider it an award for all all
0: three of us. And and for people who don't remember, this was a local franchise opportunity here that you guys took upon yourself. I mean, one of the originals for the Toledo area as far as coffee shops.
3: It was before Starbucks was in the area, before any other coffee houses, before the Big B's. I mean, it was before any of those. Where does that
0: brainchild come from?
3: Um, do you remember? Yes, we had all gone away to school. Um, I had gone to Kent State. My sister was at John Carroll. My sister was here. But we were around Northwest Ohio, and we would go um, to these other college towns and study and go to the coffee houses. Mm-hmm. And um, we came back and told our parents, like, look, we should, we should do this. This is something that would work. Mm-hmm. And we just... I don't know why they thought it was a good idea either. When I think about it, my mother was my age, the age that I am now. <laughs> when when we um, when started the copy back I wanna, then. When her daughter was
0: I wanna do this.
3: Yes, yes, and so the award meant a lot because it meant, it told me that, um, you know, maybe I was on the right track, you know, that people, uh, at least one or two people were recognizing that what, um, what we were doing was good and was welcomed.
0: This is while you were getting your Law degree, or so
3: I didn't start um, back to law school until I think um, 2000. Okay. So we, you know, when I think back to being a 26 year old and having 120 employees and running these uh, six locations and a bakery operation and all this, I mean, it's it seems it got that absolutely big. insane. Yes, and. Um, <clears throat> We thought, well, let's just see. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We didn't even know if anyone was going to come the first day, and and we ended up operating for 10 years. So it was the last two and a half or so years of the company that I went to law school at night.
0: Gotcha. So when you look back at what this award has become and Mm -hmm. what it still means to the area and how I said, it's almost almost that what do you do besides what people know you do?
3: Yeah, right? it's, um, I think they're looking, uh, people that are nominated seem to consistently be someone that um, certainly works or is contributing mm. um, to their employer, but it's, um, you know, where are they a coach? And where are they volunteering? And um, who are they helping? Yeah. And what are they otherwise contributing um, to the community? Um, and it's also very, very cool. I've been back to the event many times, mm. um, but all of the past winners go. You know, and so there's this encouragement, you get to wear a little ribbon that you wear past winter, then all the nominees have their little ribbon. And so it really has become a community yeah. over these last 20 20- more than, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. <laughs> More than 20 years. And we um, do have
0: to put an apology out there to Chris Peterson, who yes. we showed in video there. We did not get her authorization <laughs> to show any of that I didn't uh, have anything as to far do with as it. a past life is concerned. <laughs> there she is once again. Oh, my again. goodness. Uh, WTOL's very own Chris Peterson time. That's at the valentine, that I think. It, okay, I think all right. That's what it is. Well, I'll tell you what. It, it, it's exciting to me that it's still... Has some panache to it, right? Mm -hmm. And it it still carries some weight as far as what it is, what it means, and what's behind it.
3: Yeah, and I think that they've done the organizers have done such a great job um, making it a meaningful award. Um, On at least one occasion, I was asked to come back and give award to someone um, that was winning that year. So they've done a they've done a really nice job, and I think it is meaningful to the people that are. Um, all the people that are nominated and then certainly people that are selected every year.
0: Well, we very much appreciate you well, taking thank some time you. going down nostalgia yes. here and looking back down it memory make, lane. It
3: doesn't make me feel old <laughs> at all, so don't don't feel bad.
0: Don't worry about that. I feel that every single day. Gretchen, thank you. Thank I appreciate you. it. This has been fun. Sure. We'll wrap things up right after this. Once again, a big thank you to Art Wheat and also Gretchen Awad and Gretchen DeBacker for spending time with us here on Leading Edge today. If you miss any part of our interviews, please go to the WTOL YouTube page and you can watch those past programs. You can also check us out. Leading Edge is a podcast. I'm Jeff Smith. Have a great rest of your week. We'll see you next time.